One of the things I find interesting is that, as I've talked about many times before, Deep Space Nine was mostly backloaded storytelling. Yet they did have ideas of where they wanted to go. Uh, we know that as of this episode, the intent was for Cardassia to become a military power again, and thus an antagonist. We also know that uh, they were trying to shift in a direction to make Dukat simultaneously more acceptable and less acceptable, depending on who you ask, because some of the people really wanted him to be darker, and some wanted him to be lighter. They call it the hardening and softening of his character. And um, we could sit here and discuss and debate Dukat all day long, so I'm not going to bring up that specific thing here, but I do want to mention one thing in particular. One of the things that multiple of the people in charge of Deep Space Nine wanted was for Kira to enter a romantic relationship with Dukat. What you think of that is up to you. I would as ever love to hear your guys' thoughts on what you think of that specific concept. I, of course, as I've already pointed out, it's weird how much they constantly try to ship Kira around on this show. I mean, we already had Barile, and then we have Shakar, which was already intended to be a romantic thing. They wanted to push Dukat, there's the other person later. I mean, what the hell, guys? I, I mean... I, okay, sure, whatever, I guess romance sells, I don't know. If I'm being blunt, most of these relationships don't really feel like they had any natural connection going for them. In fact, I would go so far as to say none of them did. Although I will say this, and I'm not in favor of a rela romantic relationship between Dukat and Kira, but of the four people I just mentioned, the only two that, in my opinion, where the actors had legitimately good chemistry and they're interdynamic with each other, romantic or otherwise, is Kira and Dukat. The two actors bounce off of each other very well. And the two characters bounce off of each other even better. And it makes for some really good television, seeing the two on screen at the same time. It, this is basically the Dukat and Kira show this episode, and this is not the last time they'll do that. And it leads to good stuff, in my opinion. Probably helped by the fact that LeVar Burton was the director this week. You can always kind of tell... Uh, you, you get used to a directorial style after a while, and Burton's a great director. I like a lot of the stuff he does. He really likes to do this thing with, like, a dynamic entry, entry of a angle, where the camera's facing like this, and then the camera will, like, shift a little bit, and that'll reveal a little bit more, like a new character or a new angle, and, oh, my God, that's going on. And then he'll usually like to do it, like, a third time, like, shift, shift, and then you can see the full totality of what's going on. He does that several times in this episode. Good stuff, good stuff. Anyways... <clears throat> And, of course, Burton's really good at pulling performances out of people, so, hey. We find out here that this, the Ravenock and that whole situation, was a six-year-old problem. As in, the ship was lost six years ago, which would have been right, you know, a couple years before the occupation really formally ended and when Cardassia was officially wrecking the hell out of everything on their way out the door. It makes a lot of sense that Dukat would have tried to send his, you know, his lover and child off. But let's actually talk about that in a second. Let's shift over to the romantic subplot first. Approximately 100% of the people who I've ever seen this episode with, or have talked to immediately after, have had the same reaction to Cisco. Oh, dude, he just screwed up! Like, all of them have had the exact same reaction, including me, I might add. Although, not when I was a kid, I'll admit that. Mom was the one who had that reaction. As an adult, I definitely have that reaction. Because... Well, it's kind of funny in its own right, and actually quite cliched if we're being honest with ourselves. But as I said before, cliche is not necessarily a bad thing, it's just a typical thing. Cisco is so clearly worried about 
everything involved with this. He's not sure if he wants to do this. It's a scary prospect. And so he behaves in exactly that matter. Ironically, Cassidy is far more certain about her romantic connections than Sisko is. She is certain that she wants to be with him. He is not. Not because he doesn't care for her, not because there isn't a connection there, but because he is uncertain, period. He even begins to start saying this in the episode. I was uncomfortable. I was a lot nervous. This job that I do, my role, this is what got Jennifer killed. And he doesn't get past that because she interrupts him. Now, you could say whatever you want about this, but the hard truth of it is it's very easy to see his perspective and hers in that. And that's, again, one of the reasons I kind of like this relationship, because it feels like a real relationship, one that has actually grown from emotional, mental, and physical connections rather than you're hot and you're here this week. So I really like the idea that she has a full cognizance of what she's getting into. And he does too. He's been through this. He lost a wife to the frickin' Borg, right? It's not like that was a planned thing. It's not like he was serving as part of the military arm of Starfleet. And I know I've argued many times that Starfleet is a military, but what I mean by that is he wasn't a front-line kind of a guy. He just happened to be on a ship that was in range when Wolf 359 happened. Remember, that's how that came down. In other words, it's not like he was in the middle of a long-term war and brought his wife on board the ship. It's more like there is this unstoppable juggernaut that we just found out about days ago that is coming straight for Earth, and we're throwing everything we've got at it. They didn't even have time to get the women and children off the ship, remember. That's, that's actually a plot point. And I bring this up because that's the nature of the job. And that was before he became part of the front lines. Lately, he's been a lot more a part of the actual military front lines of Starfleet. So you can see the perspective of, I'm not sure if we can do this anymore. Now, what I, I kind of don't like is it's left unspoken. Obviously, he doesn't want to make this choice for her, but he's also not entirely certain if he can make this choice for him, if he's not quite ready. As was said very expertly by basically everyone he talks to, Dax, um, arguably Quark, uh, Bashir, Nog, by, by transference, uh, Jake, and of course Cassidy herself. Sisko's scared. And why wouldn't he be? Even we here, real-life squishy humans who don't have jobs in the military, tend to get scared when it starts to get real when it comes to relationships, male or female. I also... <laughs> I do like how they kind of quietly mock him. Like, <laughs> Dax and Bashir, that's a big step. You can tell the a lot of friendship the two have kind of developed over the years. I've, met, I've commented on that before, but for them to be so comfortable in mocking his relationship issues, you can tell Bashir's chilled a lot around Dax. I also love the idea that Jake is super casual about the fact that he's been discussing his father's love life with Nog. Now, I doubly point that out because, remember, in this very episode, he gets advice from Quark, which is terrible. You know, the whole, it's all about control thing. But Nog, by contrast, is quite observant and says, yeah, no, Nog thought this too, but Nog thinks this and that. And, and Avery Brooks is just sitting there like, uh, okay, I, I guess Nog knows this stuff now. Shrug. So let me cut over to the other situation. I do like the idea of the Cardassian, um, Cardassian-Bajoran joint operation. Obviously, Kira wanted to do this for personal reasons, 
But it, you know, eventually the idea of a Bajoran Cardassian joint operation, well, that's a good step. It's a big step, you might say. Sorry, sorry. But it's an important step. Two powers that are no longer at war and have a treaty deciding to make jo joint operations. I know this sounds like a cliche, but that is a very necessary element in, in coordinating, cooperating, and eventually getting some kind of real treaty or real alliance with those powers. There's also this very interesting point. Um, where is it? I'm trying to find the exact... I thought I wrote it down. I swore I wrote it down. Here it is. Uh, so, you know, during the later conversation between Dukat and Kira, Kira says, we may even be allies someday. We may even become close friends, but not you and I, right? Now, I find that funny for several reasons. First of all, because Dukat and Kira will become allies in the future. I don't even feel like that's a spoiler. But more to the point, seeing what happens to Bajor and Cardassi over the course of this show is, to put, a, to put as fine a point on it as I can, fascinating, given what happens to both powers. It's especially interesting when we get move forward a little bit towards the STO era, finding out what's happened after Deep Space Nine is just invigorating to me, and I really enjoy the direction that story took. I hate to keep commenting on STO, but what do you want from me? Someday we'll see if STO's canon or not, since they got that Picard show coming out. I wonder when that's coming out. That might even be up by the time this video goes live. Obviously, it's not even... We don't even have a release date by the time I'm recording it. So, they do have this joint operation. And you kind of... At, at, at first, I was thinking this is another situation of the people who fell into the cracks when it came to the occupation forces. Um, as was pointed out before, Cardassia was still keeping prisoners that they hadn't returned per treaty for their own particular reasons. But we're pretty much past that exact point now. This really is a unique situation. There was a ship. It went down. We're looking for survivors. It was six years ago. And perhaps, fortunately... God, that's a weird way to say that. Perhaps, fortunately, the Breen were interested in slaves, so they kept them alive. Oh, yeah, we see the Breen for the first time in this episode, and not the last. Funny fact, the Breen had long been considered something of an inside joke amongst the creators of Star Trek. I've actually already commented on this over in the TNG episode The Loss, which I don't know when that goes live relative now, but I've already recorded it. And that's the very first in, uh, mention of the Breen as a race. It's just an offhand thing in the background. And that kind of became a recurring trend on TNG, to just kind of mention the Breen. They even did this in Generations, uh, which has happened by this point in time, if you're remembering. So then they just kind of kept referencing the Breen, and finally they're like, okay, let's go ahead and bring the Breen in here. And I remember several creators talked about the Breen and how they weren't 100% sure what they wanted to do with them. Because they wanted to use them as a race, but they wanted them to be different from all the existing races, so they kind of made them a little bit of an enigma. But what I find most fascinating is the reason the Breen are in the outfits and we never see their faces is not really by deliberate design. Instead, it's because of the fact that the makeup team had just done significant makeup effort on multiple other races for recent episodes, and we're like, I don't feel like doing another one. Put a helmet on them. And that's why we never see the Breen's faces. It's always weird learning how this stuff is made, isn't it? That then did then feed into the idea of the Breen being a mysterious race in the future, so that actually worked out. I also kind of like uh, the idea of Dukat and why he was the one sent to this. The out-of-character reasoning is obvious, because they wanted to soften Dukat's character. They wanted to push Kira and Dukat together, and you know they wanted Dukat to have a, long, a large presence in the episode. I'll talk more about that in a second, too. But they all, there's also the in-character reasoning. I would bet money that Dukat actually pulled a lot of favors to get onto this mission, because of its personal significance to him. 
In fact, I would be surprised if that weren't it. I, I would be astonished if it weren't his own intelligence uh, contacts, who are the ones who informed him of this mission Kira was pushing, and then had him go and say, hey, so joint operation? You know, just maybe. So then he sits there, and he starts chatting with Kira. It's an interesting and fascinating chat. <laughs> he talks about how the occupation helped Bajor. I'm reminded of a quote. It is actually a quote of my own, although I've heard other people say basically the exact same quote. So I'll call this a case of independent uh, invention. You know, when multiple people invent the same thing independent of each other. That which does not kill me does not make me stronger. I make me stronger by refusing to let it kill me. In other words, the idea here is that the Cardassian Union doesn't really get credit for how much Bajor picked itself up as a course of, and in the wake of the occupation. Bajor gets credit for that. And given that what we've been talking about for the last three years of, of in-game in time here, I, I don't remember how long it's been since we've started this DS9 stuff. It's been over a year at this point, I'm pretty sure. But over all this time, Bajor was a mess in the wake of the occupation. And of course it was, but I don't just mean in terms of infrastructure or, or bombed-out cities or whatever. I mean, they had no idea how to self-govern anymore. They had no idea how to handle things. There's a reason they've, there's already nearly been two civil wars amongst Bajor since the occupation ended and nearly had the Cardassians move back in and trying to prevent the Federation from moving in and having to deal with the Klingons and that's going to be an ongoing thing in the future. It's no wonder all of these things are a problem. These people were so devastated by the occupation, which is why I think I could say with high certainty that, uh, no, the occupation did not help Bajor. Bajor helped Bajor in spite of the occupation, which is actually exactly what Kira says, funnily enough, so I agree with her on that. So, Dukat, there's some really good stuff here. I just got to say I really give a lot of credit to Mark Alemo. They filmed this at Soledad Canyon. I've actually been there myself once when I was much younger, and it can get pretty hot there, and he's in a big old uniform in makeup, <laughs> and he has to act. And yet he does a lot of really good subtle acting, most notably with his face and with his body language. It's actually really good stuff, so credit to him, credit to the team. I sometimes wonder if they did that thing, which this is actually a fairly common thing when you have to do on-site location, where they've just got a big old fan over here off camera, and the actor just goes over and goes, ah, just to cool off for a bit before they go back on camera, you know. So he's very focused on getting this working, and he kind of ignores everything, including... Kolrami! Man, after that defeat with the whole thing with the Ferengi and Riker, apparently Kolrami really fell on hard times. He's, he's off salvaging scrap now to the Ferengi and whatnot, but it was nice to see him again. So Dakot is there, and he's, he's very focused on this, and he makes his comment about, you know, well, hang on, hang on, I, I don't want you to do this. You know, because the dead, right? You know, Cardassians don't want other people to view the dead. But the Bajorans don't care, as, as Kai Marisa, uh, or Marissa pointed out. You know, this is not the kind of thing that we care about. The, the, the soul has moved on. The body's just a ves empty vessel left after. And Sakura's like, okay. How legit do you think that was? One of the most interesting things I find about Takata is we can always debate his intent. His actions are undebatable because they're actions, they're provable things. But his intent is probably the most debated thing about Star Trek Deep Space Nine, um, in my experience at least, ever. Like, I, I see so many people constantly debating Takata to this very day. 
well, not this day, but uh, I'd say about a week ago was the last time I saw people debating Dukat and his motives and, and perspectives. So fairly recently, I'd like to think. Certainly about 20 years, or over 20 years actually at this point, since this episode came out. So Dukat, you know, how legitimate is it? Is it just because he didn't want him to find out about Neprem? And by he, I mean her. Did he not want Kira to find out about Neprem? Or is it because he really believed that and he actually cares about Cardassian traditions? I don't know. And then, of course, that brings to the next question. How much did he actually care about her? Based on perspectives, I'd like to think that he really did actually care about her. Given what we find out in the future about Kira's mother and about... Oh, I can't remember the other one's name. And about her, his actual wife. It's entirely possible that there's no what we would call legitimate romantic connection between Dukat and Neprem. But at the same time... As much as we can debate his intent, his actions do showcase. He still sent for her and his and his daughter to get the hell out of Dodge, to go off to Ildissa or whatever, so they could live out the rest of their lives in peace and comfort. He did still take action to protect them. That's interesting in its own right. Now, what's doubly funny is he made that decision years ago, and yet, as he points out in the modern era, this is a decision that he mostly had to make. Remember... They, thanks to the way the Cardassia was, especially prior to now, the very idea of a half-Bajoran child being over there, she's not going to be embraced. She's going to be looked down upon. And in fact, of course, as we will find out, this, this would completely destroy Dukat's own standing for basically having been a traitor to his family, which is, as I've mentioned several times, one of the big things about Cardassians, the tribal thing. And as we've already established, and I dotted down, Season 2, Episode 5, the episode Cardassians, which I actually personally thought was a very good episode, with more layers than was probably intended by the script, in that episode we see that Cardassian kids are not quite, it's not to the point of abuse, they're not being beaten every day, but they are not accepted, they are not welcomed, they're not warmed, they are outsiders and unwanted, and basically just kind of left out to dry on Bajor. Which, again, it's hard to blame the Bajorans for that, but at the same time, those are innocent children who are basically being left out to dry, like I just said, because of the crimes of their parents. Or parent, I guess, would be slightly more accurate in this case. So you can kind of see the mentality. Zial would have no home on Cardassia or Bajor. So where else could she go? Now, then they have the cave scene. The cave scene is interesting. Everyone really wanted the cave scene, and I get the mentality, having read the interviews about it. Because the cave scene is when they have this moment where they all burst out laughing, and he, st he sits on this spine, and blah, blah, blah. It's this big bonding moment. But it's important to note that a bonding moment doesn't necessarily mean anything else. I've seen a lot of people say, oh, well, this is just trying to make it seem like Dukat's not a horrible person. No. It's trying to make it seem like Kira's falling for him. No. It's trying to make it seem like the two are connecting. Yes. Because that's what a bonding moment is. Like it or not, even someone you despise, if you go through some kind of hell with that person, or through a lighthearted moment, or something with that person, if you share an experience with someone else, a bond is created there, as long as that's the kind of thing that you are capable of as a sentient sapient being. This is very true in real life. There's a reason total strangers can end up becoming fast friends, or having some kind of union or understanding or allegiance to each other, based on having gone through some crap together right? This is a very common human thing. 
Now in this case, it's not crap or garbage or hell, it's just a lighthearted moment in the cave, but it's still an experience the two share, and that levity and that moment of laughter helps to add a bond between Kira and Dukat. Not necessarily a friendship, not necessarily a romantic, but some kind of connection, some interpersonal connection between the two. And I think that's very important to keep in mind going forward. I personally, well, I'll talk more about that in a second. Also, is it just me or those MREs? Like, those look extra, they actually got MREs for eating in that scene. Is that just me? Anybody else, anybody who's more of an expert on this, please let me know. I haven't had an MRE in frickin' years. Like, over a decade at this point. So, Ducat's perspective in all this, I hate to keep talking about him, is so interesting because he is clearly selfish. He cares about his position, his rank, his title. I mean, he flat out says, my position is nowhere near as strong as it used to be. I'm just now barely being accepted by the new civilian government. I don't have the political infrastructure I used to. And yet he still obviously cares. At every step he's been showcasing through action how much he does care about Naprem and about Zial. There's a wonderful moment when um, they're on the ridge... They're looking through the binoculars, and they're looking down at the, the hill, and he goes, and he's doing this, and he's doing this little thing, and I don't know how much of this is the actor or the director or both, but there's this moment where Mark Alamo is doing this, and he just, he just stops all movement. He just freezes, like you could see the shock going through him, and Kira has to call his name twice, like, Takat, Takat, what? Takes the, takes the thing from him, and he's just... And he gets this really pained, horrible expression on his face of just, because Zial is alive. Some part of Dukat was hoping that she wouldn't be, so he wouldn't have to make this choice. You can't tell me he doesn't care. Now, we can debate intent. We can debate a lot of the other nuances of Dukat. But I think on this point, we could say with definitive certainty, Dukat loves his daughter. He really does care about this person. He really does care about that individual. Even when he goes after her, despite all of his cold calculus, which he himself has preached to Cisco before, if you'll remember, back during the Maquis effort, he can't bring himself to pull that trigger. Also, quick aside, I know this is a very small point, but there's this bit where Kira is rescuing the people, and they're killing the brain and rescuing the slaves, which is awesome. It's great that they get to rescue all these people. I wish they'd rescued all, all of them, but, you know... Getting all the 31 or so that are left is good. I was actually really worried when I first saw this episode they were just going to get Zial out and leave the rest. I'm going to be like, you got to be kidding me. But no, they get them all out. So that's good. Slavery, bad. Breen, go to hell. So <clears throat> there's this bit where the Bajoran sees her, a Bajoran, and is just like, oh my God, you're coming to rescue us. And then Dukat takes off his mask and starts yelling about where the hell is Zial. And he's like, you're a Cardassian. And she's like, no, no, it's okay. There's a treaty. Note she doesn't have to explain any more than that. Instead, all he says is, with this tone of almost relief and wonderment, you mean the occupation's over? I myself have been through some hells in my life, plural. But I have never been through the kind of systemic hell that the occupation is. I'm not sure anyone in my entire country has been through that kind of systemic hell. And I stress that word systemic. I've been through some crap, but that crap has always ended. I've always made it through to the other side and kept going forward. The occupation was a decades-long hellscape. The very idea, remember, this person who asked this very question was born during the occupation, just like Kira herself was. 
El Ducat was born during the occupation. Picture for a moment what it would be like if you had lived through that kind of, again, systemic hell, constant, continuous, unending, and then to be told, no, there's a treaty. And he just jumps to the conclusion immediately, the occupation's over. Picture what that would mean. I know that's a really weird thing to point out, but as weird as this may sound, I feel like Deep Space Nine really, never really quite nailed that moment of relief and joy at the end of the occupation, like I would have liked. Granted, obviously, there was a mess left behind and a lot of work to be done. But goddamn, that moment of relief when they finally, no, really leave, that had to mean something to a lot of people. And so I just like that we get this tiny little window onto it on this random episode in Season 4. So they rescue all of them. Ducat goes, he can't shoot her. She even, she doesn't even run. She just says, all right, go ahead, shoot me. Now, I don't think she really meant that. But I do think that what was going through her head was basically uh, emotional turmoil. Okay, well, I believed in my father, but now he's here to kill me, just like they always told me. So, okay, whatever. Like, in other words, she was in the moment, and she couldn't quite process it. If she had been thinking straight, she probably would have just run. But Ducat can't pull that trigger. He can't. Not just because she's his daughter, but because he does actually love her. And again, I think we could say that with fairly high certainty. For all the other things we can debate about his character, I'm pretty sure that one's true. As ever, I do welcome your guys' thoughts on this matter. But it is interesting that he basically torpedoes his career over this. And when she says it's going to make things difficult for you, he says, I'll let you know, and just wanders off. Obviously, this is one of those things that will never be true until I invent the holodeck. But I've always wondered what it would be like to be able to go back and make Deep Space Nine. Like, if, if I had the ability to edit Deep Space Nine, you know, which obviously is completely impossible. But, I mean, again, if I had a holodeck and I could adjust the show as it went, you know, rewrite the series like I was doing with Voyager with the uh, the Arshian Gaian review, excuse me. I'm not used to saying that word. I don't say that word that often anymore. Um, the whole idea of, of doing that is a fascinating concept to me. And I mention this because, as I've seen in the interviews, this was apparently the intent. It wasn't just softening Ducat. They wanted Ducat on the show more. They wanted him to be a more recurring guest star than he already was. Now, I don't blame them. Marco Lemo's great. Ducat was popular, and it was a very complex and dynamic character who could serve as a villain, an ally, and a friend basically equally. He was a great fit for Deep Space Nine, so of course they wanted more of him. Now, for whatever reason, they didn't quite end up going this route. Instead, he ended up being the, you know, every few episodes kind of a thing. But I point this out because this move in this episode is a perfect puzzle piece to make that happen. As we find out, spoilers, but I don't think this is really spoilers, he basically ends up getting disowned by Cardassia over this. Like I said, he torpedoes his career over this, his decision to keep Zial. So, I really like the idea of him basically being ejected from the upper echelons of Cardassian control. And, well, where else is he going to go? And ending up working here with this kind of ragtag group who doesn't quite like him, but is willing to at least accept him. Kind of like the Q thing. You know, Q didn't really have friends on the Enterprise, but they weren't going to kill him. Right? Now, again, I'm not saying that we need to make Dukat a good guy. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying we need to make him a regular. Make him a regular presence. 
You know, give him his own little ship, make him part of the part of the dynamic of the characters. I think there's so much potential with that. I would love to think of the kind of story ideas we could have done. And I know what you're thinking. Well, there's no room. Have you seen Deep Space Nine? There's tons of room for those kind of stories. Hell, you could eject entire episodes. <clears throat> Let you is without sin. <clears throat> Providently. Excuse me, excuse me. Just food for thought. As ever, love to hear your guys' thoughts. I did very much enjoy this episode. I'll see you guys next time.